Good morning. We are reading from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll be reading from verse 17 to the end of the chapter 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. So many of you know, if you're a parent or a caregiver, especially if you're a mom, since it's Mother's Day, uh, you know that sometimes the meal that you prepare is not always the meal that your family eats. You prepare a meal for your loved ones in such a way that you imagine, oh, well, with all your planning and labors, you imagine nourishment. You're trying to nourish the people you care about. And, and you're hopeful that during that time when they're nourished, you'll build your relationship with one another. You put effort and love and thought and care into that meal that you prepare. But it's quite often, as some of you know, that the actual meal that the people you've prepared it for are eating is something that's eaten with ungratefulness, ingratitude. Uh, people complain about what's set before them, uh, some, sometimes so much that they get up and go to the fridge and look for something else to eat. 
Uh, they bicker with one another at the table. Uh, so the meal that you had planned carefully, lovingly, is not the actual meal that's being eaten. The Apostle Paul said to the ancient church in Corinth, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. One goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. The meal that the Lord Jesus Christ had prepared for them, had intended for them, Paul was saying, was not the meal that they were actually eating. The meaning of the meal was forgotten on them. And their unity was broken. Now we can think of, this is the way one scholar puts it, we can think of the Corinthians messing up the Lord's Supper as a way of being thankful for them. You can thank the Corinthians for messing up communion. Because as a result of these corrective words that Paul wrote to them, we actually get ancient wisdom for current issues that we face as a church community. Paul wasn't writing this letter. You may have picked up on this already. Paul wasn't writing this letter, as he did in other letters, to refute false doctrine, like uh, the letter to the Galatians. It's not a theological treatise like his letter to the Romans. Paul's not refuting false teachers in his letter to the Corinthians. He's condemning social cliques. What Paul's doing in this letter is he is challenging their cultural assumptions. And this section of chapter 11 is a perfect case in point. Their social habits were ruining the family meal, the Lord's Supper. And since like the ancient Christian Corinthians, American Christians can be individualistic and competitive, this passage challenges our assumptions of what the sacraments are for. Sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper or communion. I'll use those words interchangeably. Lord's Supper, communion, I mean the same thing. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are as much about the community's faith as it is about the individual receiving that blessing. It's as much about the community, read through the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, as it is about an individual and what I think you're going to see today is that the Lord's Supper shows us that a sacrificial Savior calls us to sacrificial community. I'm hoping for us to broaden our understanding of why Christians take communion. And as we discover this, we're going to talk about the meal that the ancient Corinthians ate. And we're going to talk about the meal that we eat today. And we're going to talk about the meal that God has actually prepared for us to eat. So the meal that they ate, the meal that we eat, and the meal that God has made for us. Now the meal that they were eating, at least some of them, uh, appears to have been, according to Paul, illegitimate. Because what they were doing was neglecting each other in the way they observed communion. You see it in verse 22, Paul said to them, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? We know uh, from bits of historical evidence that the early churches gathered in private homes. Uh, usually it was in a wealthier 
members' home. It needed to be a house large enough to accommodate an entire congregation of people. And in that setting, communion seems to have been observed along with a common meal, almost like a meal within a meal, a ceremonial meal after a normal social meal. But wealthier Christians were, according to Paul, indulging themselves with what they were eating and what they were drinking in the presence of the poor who were among them in the church. Now, a Roman, a Roman style dining room uh, was very much like your dining room and my dining room. If you have a house with a dining room, it could only accommodate nine to 12 people. It was called a triclinium, three, three couches, three people at a couch, very limited space. And typically, if you had a large gathering, the most honored guests would sit with you in the dining room and, and you'd serve them along with yourself as the host, the best food, the best wine. Lower status guests were relegated to the courtyard, to the rest of the house. And uh, they, they were served uh, cheaper cheaper drinks and, and cheaper foods. And in a sense, because of their class, uh, they kind of had to look on uh, as the event uh, took place. Jesus actually talked a lot about this in, in some of his parables about how when you invite people to your house for dinner, you usually put the most important guests close to the head of the table with you. Uh, ancient Roman house was very similar. The high-class guests got high-class treatment and the lower-class guests were relegated to the side. And it's in this context that we have to understand what Paul is saying to the ancient Corinthians. One relevant comment, historical comment, about Corinth was made a century later by a visitor there who recorded these words. I learned in a short time the nauseating behavior of the rich and the misery of the poor. So within that cultural setting, the church in Corinth observed communion. And so Paul says to them, one of you goes ahead with his own meal, another gets drunk, another goes without anything to eat at all. I want you to imagine yourself as a moderately well-off ancient Corinthian of some means, even some means. Before you were a Christian, now Paul is writing to almost entirely a Gentile congregation. They didn't have a Jewish background. Now, if you're a typical ancient Corinthian Christian, what you were used to before you became a Christian was going to public feasts and parties in the local temple. That's what you would think of when you thought of a public meal and when you thought of a religious ceremony and a religious feast. But now, as a Christian, the only religious feast you attend is this Lord's Supper, which has very little to do with indulgence or decadence, but actually proclaims, and Paul uses the word proclaim or declare, this feast that you're eating, it actually proclaims the death of a Jewish carpenter who was crucified in some remote region of the world. Higher class members of the church would have approached communion from that perspective, not from Paul's Jewish perspective, where he understood that communion's predecessor was the ancient Hebrew Passover, which was a holy meal, but a meager meal. 
It was intended to be eaten, remembering the exodus, as though you're eating fast so you have to get out before judgment comes. They didn't share Paul's perspective on that. Neither did they appreciate the limitations of the poorer believers among them. So Paul reminds them of what the Lord's Supper is all about. And so he tells them, and, and you hear, if you're a Christian, you hear this every time you take communion. Paul says to them that the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul goes on to tell them, and in the same way, after supper, see, it's a meal after a meal, a meal within a meal. After supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul went on to tell them, when you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's at dinner time that families regroup on our best days and, 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 and if it's going well in your household. It's at dinner time that the family regroups and, and there are reports. What's going on in your life? What happened today? What's going on this week? What's going on in the lives of your friends or in our relatives? At, at the family dinner, t dinner table, people regroup and report and encourage one another. And you know what? Sometimes discipline takes place Maybe all the time for some of us, discipline takes place at the family table. And we plan. We plan what's going to happen for the rest of the week. We plan what our vacations or free time is going to look like. We even remember. We think back to times long ago, or we tell stories of people who are no longer with us. We look to the past, and we also look to the future at the family dinner table. It encourages unity, looking back and also looking forward. Well, the Lord's Supper and its Old Testament predecessor, the Passover, they're family meals. God's children get together to remember his redeeming acts, the acts by which he adopted them as his sons and daughters into the household, right there present at his table, eating directly from his hand, and it's when they not only remember, but when God's children anticipate his coming salvation. And Paul is calling them back to that. That's the meal that Paul is reminding them. This is the meal that Jesus has prepared for you. Unity around the table. Remembering his sacrifice. Now, though our, our normal Lord's Supper observance looks different Right? It's a lot more simple. It's very public and ceremonial. Though it looks very different, here's a key application for you if you worship and follow the Lord Jesus and take communion. Or if you found yourself at a communion service and didn't partake because you're not a Christian and you're wondering, what are these people doing? Why are they doing it? The meal that you and I eat, communion, is a call to sacrificial unity. Communion is a call to sacrificial unity. The Lord's Supper is not simply a call to individual reflection. It is not simply a call for you and I privately to confess our sins to God and think about what we've done wrong during the week. 
Although Paul did say in verse 28, let a person examine himself or prove or test himself, examine himself then and so eat and so drink. But what's the context of that, right? What are we examining? Examining, self-examination concerning what? Well, look at verse 29. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. The body. In the original Greek language, it was just without discerning the body. Some English translations add the body of the Lord, and that's unfortunate. It's more, it was more simple than that, without discerning the body. The way one scholar puts it is, Paul is not talking about the body on the table, meaning the bread and the cup represent the Lord Jesus's broken body and shed blood. Paul's not talking about the body on the table. He's talking about the body at the table. He's talking about us. It's a we concept when he says, discern, think about the body. By neglecting the body, this body, you and I, Paul goes on to say, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Because by neglecting one another in the way the Corinthians were doing, we dishonor the death that Jesus died for us, not just for you, not just for me. Christians, by all means, we should examine ourselves personally, okay? Absolutely before you take communion. Examine yourself, your life, your thoughts, where you are spiritually, where you are in your mind, what you've been thinking about, what you've been doing, and take encouragement, spiritual nourishment, knowing that Christ's sacrifice was to wash you clean of your rebellious record before a holy God. By all means, do that and make it very personal for yourself, but as much and even not more, examine your relationship with others around the table with you. Paul would go on to say, so then, my brothers, when you, and he means sisters too, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. When he says wait for one another, the original word and expression, it meant more than wait. Because if they're just waiting for each other, the people who brought no food still have no food. Waiting for them doesn't do anything. He means more than wait for one another when you're about to eat. The word also meant to embrace, to receive one another. This is much more of a communal, interrelational idea here. Now note something. He says, if you're hungry, eat at home before you come to worship. That's really important. Paul didn't deny them their personal rights and their personal property. Do you notice that? Christianity doesn't deprive you of your personal liberty. Christian faith doesn't deprive you of your personal property or your customs or your culture and traditions, provided they're honorable. But when we gather as Christ's body, we don't make those things the centerpiece on the table. We put them aside. We put them in perspective, and if necessary, we leave them at home. It was in Psalm 113, we read earlier today, 
where the psalmist said of God, he raises the poor from the dust heap and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. Those who are marginalized among us and those who are prosperous among us come together as brothers and sisters. Now, if you can't picture yourself still sitting at the ancient table with the Corinthians, think of it this way. Most of us in the room have, have, have traveled by airplane, by airliner, okay? I think so. So, so what do you know about airliners? Uh, for, for those in our society who are of different classes, whether coach class or business and first class, we get our own sections on the plane. There's a first class section with cushy wide chairs and pillows and blankets and headsets and really good food and drink, right? Now, I've never sat in that section, but I walk through it every time I get on a plane. And then there's coach class, there's economy class, and it's rather, well, you get you get really skinny chairs. It's like being on a Greyhound bus in the 70s. You get skinny, cramped, hard chairs, and you get peanuts and pretzels. And half of you in the room can't even eat the peanuts. And the other half of you in the room can't even eat the pretzels. (laughs) But what if, what if the Apostle Paul told us I want you to hold a worship service on the plane as brothers and sisters in Christ. What if we had to put together a worship service, a public Christian service on a traveling airliner? Would the first class believers enjoy first class amenities while the rest looked on? Looking ahead, wondering what are they doing up there? What is going on? I guess I'm going to get up in line and wait for an open door to the bathroom. You see, we are called to remember each other in the context of Christian community, in ministry, in worship, in service. We're not told there can't be different sections of a plane for different prices, but we are told to put that stuff aside and remember one another, our needs one another's needs, and embrace each other across the distinctions that the world makes. Examine yourself, yeah, but examining ourselves corporately as a family, in order to examine ourselves, we must identify what we're forgetting. We must identify who we are forgetting. Now, yeah, when we celebrate, we're going to do it next week. When we celebrate communion, we're not leaving any Christian out. We're not overeating. Uh, You got to eat a lot of those cups to overeat. And I'm pretty sure none of you are getting drunk on how we practice communion. Probably not happening. If you are getting drunk on that stuff, it's the placebo effect because it's just grape juice. So we're not exactly committing the same practical sins that the Corinthians were committing 2,000 years ago um, because it's just a simple ritual, right? Everyone's given the same small ceremonial portion. We keep it simple. We keep it straightforward. But 
do we disqualify some from our church events, from our groups and what our groups do, from ministry opportunities uh, because we've overlooked their lack of funds or their lack of health or their lack of time or because they come from a different perspective? Do we design and plan and enjoy a Sunday morning worship experience that overlooks the ethnic considerations, the cultural considerations, the intellectual backgrounds, the economic factors that are at play in the lives of the people sitting in front of you and behind you and next to you. As our leaders work and pray, as our team leaders plan, as our launch team and our elders and our deacons and women who have been involved in the leadership of this very young church, we've had to ask ourselves all of these questions. How are we accommodating our own cultural assumptions in every ministry and worship context? And in any of those ways, are we overlooking those who come from a different perspective or have less? Are we forgetting them? Are we neglecting them? The church began to do this very early in its history. Read Acts chapter six. This is a very dangerous thing to do this. Jesus takes it personally. Remember when he said, such as you do to these little ones, you're doing it to me. When you treat these little ones in such a way, you've done it to me, good or bad. It's so dangerous because in neglecting one another, we end up forgetting Jesus. We forget what the whole thing is about. Paul goes on to say in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Paul is saying to you, don't come to your father's table despising the very siblings that he dearly loves. Don't come to the table of the Lord overlooking and neglecting the brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. But we remember each other by remembering the point of the meal. That's the beauty of the meal, is that the meal itself nourishes. The meal itself encourages. The meal itself corrects and recalibrates. Just as Paul warned the Corinthians that this meal is a curse, literally a curse for those who take it in disrespect and take it in ignorance. It is a blessing. It is, as the Westminster Confession says, a means of grace. As one writer puts it, it is spiritual food for those who take it in faith, for those who take it with thankful hearts, grateful for what their heavenly father has put on the table for them. See, faith approaches this meal with thankful hearts, thankful for the meal that Jesus prepared for us to eat. And faith remembers the meal that Jesus prepared for himself. This is why you give thanks this is why it's called the Eucharist, thanksgiving in certain contexts. We approach the Lord's table with a thankful heart because we remember that Christ prepared for us this blessed meal for our forgiveness and reconciliation and adoption, but he prepared for himself a different meal. 
Remember, he told his disciples, you you cannot drink the cup I'm about to drink. Father, take this cup from me, he said on the night that he was betrayed. I don't want to drink this cup. It was the cup of God's wrath. He was petrified in his humanity, the God of the universe, petrified in his humanity of partaking the meal he had prepared for himself, the meal that you and I deserved. But Jesus drank and, and, and consumed the meal of God's wrath intended for selfish, indulgent, individualistic Corinthians and Americans and Carroll Countyans. Jesus ate the meal of God's wrath so that we could eat the meal of God's forgiveness. So the meal itself reminds us of him who remembered us, who did not neglect us, who though we were poor and though he was rich, he became poor to meet our needs. Now remember each other. Remember each other, especially when you take the Lord's Supper. Examine that you are not neglectful of your brothers and sisters in the faith right here in this room and in the community and all over the world, especially those who are persecuted. But you don't have to look very far to see a tremendous amount of need in the faithful all around you. Remember each other because Christ remembered you. And remember these things as we celebrate the Lord's Supper next Sunday. A sacrificial savior calls us to sacrificial community and unity. So in your walk of faith and in your ministry and in our fellowship amongst each other and in the community, remember others' needs as Christ remembered yours. Let's pray. Our Father, it is, it is a sobering thing to consider that uh, we desecrate our Lord's Supper by forgetting each other. Uh, Father, may our worship be a sobering and humbling experience. May we not forget what put Jesus on the cross, our own selfish indulgence, forgetfulness, neglect, and yet may it be a feast of joy and confidence knowing that Jesus Christ on the cross by his blood killed the hostility between Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, black and white and Asian, and every other distinction. Christ killed that hostility on the cross. So now help us enjoy to live out that reconciliation. Father, help us to examine not only ourselves individually, but examine ourselves in relationship to the people around us. And help us rejoice that we have a seat at, at the table as we sang earlier, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath no longer against us. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table with our brothers and our sisters. Jesus, thank you. May it be so. Amen.